So we're back with Roy McIntyre to talk a bit uh, about DACT and the F3. So before we get into a few platforms you went up against, Roy, just tell our viewers what DACT is. DACT is dissimilar air combat training. That's where you have two different aircraft types manoeuvring aggressively against each other, both BVR, beyond the visual range, and within the visual range. And the two, one merges into the other, but they're all important now. Uh, in World War One days, it was all visual manoeuvring, Battle of Britain, all visual manoeuvring. Nowadays, the fight starts out beyond 50 miles, but we don't stop and then switch to the visual. It's one big, long phase, one transitioning into the other. And what happens to begin with affects what happens in the end game. But the top gun bit is the visual manoeuvring. Yes. So how often would you, um, I guess, get into that kind of visual range and how, uh, like with other aircraft and, you know, um, how often was it, was it planned or was it just spur of the moment? Never spur of the moment, not for air combat because it's so aggressive, it needs to be organised, it can get dangerous and it could uh, end in tears quite easily. So we weren't allowed to go into unplanned air combat. There was something called target of opportunity for us and we would have what we call visual manoeuvring. Right, what's the difference? Well, there would be preset limits that one or other of the two uh, parties or would have to stick to and when they reached those limits we would stop it was really just like safety limits really to stop it getting carried away uh, in the unplanned un unbriefed scenario so all the air combat sorties we would have either within the squadron ourselves or with other f3s or with other aircraft types would all have been pre-briefed as a minimum over the telephone preferably face to face um, so everybody knew what, what the objectives were, everybody knew what the rules were and knew the parameters that would cause the engagement to stop. So we had to keep control of it because it can. we are operating towards the edge, so you need those limits. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm going to pick a few aircraft here and I would like you to tell me your experiences and how the F3 did uh, against these types. So I'm just going to name three off... Uh, my head right now maybe you can just go through them so the first will be the f14 second would be the f15 and third f16 so if you can tell us how you fared against them roy yeah absolutely uh i've already kind of mentioned there's two phases to this there's a beyond the visual range and then there's the within the visual range and as a headline the f3 didn't do well in the within the visual range bit we were always on the back foot it was a question of how far we were on the back foot, depending on what happened before. So we're talking about the F-14. Uh, I went up against the F-14 on two occasions. The first one was in an, um, an exercise in 1988 called Exercise Teamwork. And it was basically out over the northwest approaches uh, beyond the Hebrides. There was a United States Navy carrier group involved. I can't remember the name of the carrier, and therefore I can't remember the name of the uh, F-14 squadron. We, what was my situation? Well, we had just um, formed 11 squadron at Leeming, and so we were still working up and hadn't yet declared to NATO. Um, I went off with my nav on one of the very first sorties where we were carrying the big 2250-litre 
underwing tanks, the big Graf Zeppelins. So <laughs> there's the first back um, uh, handicap because when they're full, if I remember correctly, the max G we could pull was two and a half G. So we're effectively like an airliner. Mm. These things were ferry tanks. We weren't allowed to drop them, so we're, we were out over the North Sea. I remember, I, I've just referred to my logbook. It was a five-hour sortie. We had a TriStar support. And um, so the tanks were emptying and then filling it. So basically, we weren't very manoeuvrable. Um, we The thing about the F-14, it's a big aircraft, and it's got a big RCS, a radar cross-section, which means... We can pick it up quite early on. We could pick it up quite early on the radar. So in the beyond visual range, we were quite well placed. Somebody's going to say, "Ah, but what about the Phoenix?" The Phoenix wasn't anything to worry about. And to be honest, against a fighter target, the Phoenix wasn't really an option. What we were really worried about were their AIM-7 Sparrows against our Super Temp Sky Flashes. So. Beyond visual range, I would have to say we were pretty equal. We had two cop, uh, two guys in the cockpit, both sides, so both working as a team, mm -hmm. and our RHWR, radar homing warning receiver, was very good right from the very start. That was one of the bits of kit on the F3 that was really good. So that meant that we could tell when the, the F14 radar was looking at us mm. and a pretty good idea of what mode it was in i.e. are they getting ready to launch a semi-active missile against us, and we could do something about it. Mm -hmm. So beyond the visual range, it was pretty good. And we didn't get a chance to debrief this sortie, so there's probably claims of shots on both sides, and they would say, yeah, we timed out a missile kill on you at this point before you did this, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if we accept that beyond the visual range, there was probably parity. There was just one on, the, on either side, I should point out. It was a single F-14 um, that was coming at us. I should also point out that this was within an exercise, so it wasn't that scripted. We didn't know what was around. They didn't really know who was coming against them. We had general rules to keep us in check. We got to the visual range, and I said to my nav, I could instantly see this was a Tomcat. You could see the twin fins, big aircraft swinging in towards us. Um, we turned towards it, and we had what we call a two-circle pass. Now, you have to excuse me here, can't can't stop a fighter pilot using his hands. That's great for us. <laughs> so, F-14 here, F-3 here, and we are displaced like that. So a, a two-circle fight means you're going to turn towards each other and go like that. So I'm completing a circle out here. He's doing a circle out here that are displayed. The center of the two circles are displaced. So that's a two-circle fight, which is good for the F-3 because it gives us space uh, I referred back in the last time I was uh, with you about the knife fight in the telephone box. That's not what the F3 wants. So two circle. But of course, we took up half of Scotland really to turn because of her excuses coming out now. But the um, the Lima fit, as we call it, meant that the, this guy was arcing around and got his nose on very, very quickly. Um, and I said to my nav, I said, that we're, we're done here. And then I had a brilliant flash of inspiration because I remember the film, Top Gun, and how Tom Cruise says, right, watch this, he's just going to fly right by. <laughs> so I did exactly what Tom Cruise did, and that is to pull the throttle to idle, put the air brakes out, and pull as hard as the configuration would allow. So the, I'm throwing all my energy out the window, 
and this is the last ditch attempt. So the aircraft just started to mush, and I looked back over my right shoulder, expecting to see the F-14 overshoot, and no, he's doing exactly the same. <laughs> and he's sitting inside me with it. I can see his underbelly as he's pulling hard. Wow. And then I got down to about 250 knots, thinking, right, now what am I going to do? So I just had to roll out at that point, put the air brakes back in, and he just cruised on up onto my wing. And the two guys are looking at us. And I just put my hands up and go, yeah, it's a fair cop. It's a fair cop. So the backseat to his camera, and then he disappeared back to the carrier and that was it so not very good from us in the visual range although we were not configured for visual maneuvering at all second time time it happened we fast forward uh, many years and i'm on the um, f3 operational evaluation unit i'm out at mountain home in idaho and there was a big trial to investigate the interoperability of, of the Link 16 JTIDs, the data link that was coming in. Now, VF2 at Miramar were invited to come up because they were also getting involved with data link. We had F, the resident USAF uh, F-16s and F-15s there. We had our own, uh, an E-3 from 8 Squadron at Waddington over. I think there was a Hawkeye come up from wherever they were based on the West Coast. And we were going to have um, some, again, uh, beyond visual manoeuvring into visual manoeuvring. Now, the thing I should point out here is that a mounted home training area is up in the Rockies and it's 3,000 feet above sea level. Mm-hmm. You start at 3,000 feet and work upwards. Um, data link gives you a lot of situational awareness. So the United States Navy were running on their own net. They were in data link, but they were kind of on their side. They were like on BBC Two and we were on BBC One. So we couldn't see each other, but we had the benefits of data link. So that kind of negated each other. But now we've, because we were on the F3 OEU, we had the leading edge equipment that was going to become available to the F3. So the radar was at the leading edge with a lot of enhancements. Um, both to the main computer and um, to our RHWR, et cetera. And we were obviously more experienced at this stage. So from the BVR side of things, given that we're semi-active against semi-active missiles again, we we were, and and in the debrief, we were able to confirm this, we were scoring kills before they were. And we started as 2v2, so two F-14s against two F-3s, but again, very quickly, because utilising data like we were quite happy to split wide because we knew where each other was. And by splitting wide, I would say we could go up to five miles apart, which is singletons in the old days. You've lost all your cross support. You've lost your mutual support. Why are you doing this? Well, we haven't through data link, and we were happy to do this. The Americans are not happy to do that. But the United States Navy or the American Air Force, and I'll come on to that in a bit, um, So that gave us an advantage, and we got into the visual fight this time personally coming in the side door, and they didn't see us. Mm. And that gave us about 90 degrees of turn, and I was was also in a configuration to manoeuvre, i.e. we didn't have big drop tanks on. Mm. So this time we came round, and I was able to get in quickly and get a uh, sidewinder shot against them. If it had continued on, I'm confident the F-14 would have gained angles on us because it's got more powerful engines. It can replenish its energy faster than I could. And therefore, as time goes on, on a 1v1 basis, the F-14 would have won. 
The other, the postscript to it, not quite DACT, but I must tell you, is one of the tactics I used to get in the side door is we found this ravine, quite a wide ravine, not the Grand Canyon, but we could drop into it, i.e. drop down below the ground level, which is up at 3,000 feet. I thought this was brilliant because we could cruise up and down as if we were in a World War One trench, just climb slightly, see what's going on, go back down again. And we reported this back when we got into the debrief. And then there was a few stony faces, particularly from the American Air Force. And they said, where exactly were you? Ah, yeah, it was this canyon down at the bottom of the training. It was br And then everybody went silent. And they said, that is the Duck Valley Reservation for, uh, you know, uh, First Nation Americans, you know. <laughs> and that is a no-go area. You don't go in there. And that was it. We got away with it. We got away. I was fully expecting to go in front of the base commander, etc. But it was all quieting down. These stupid Brits don't understand what's going on. <laughs> but we were using every trick we could. So that was how we got on against the F-14s. It, it had to be the advantage from range, not in the visual side. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. But yeah. F-15s we worked a lot with. Um, they're always superior to the F-3 across the whole range. Their radars generally, generally were better than ours, except towards the end of the F-3's life. Their weapon system was always better or the same. Again, we achieved parity when we got the M120 AMRAAM and the ASRAM, which I would argue was better than even the M9X, but certainly better, better than the M9 Mike uh, Sidewinder. Um, but the airframe itself performed better than the F3 in all regimes, uh, all heights, etc., etc. What's the advantage we had? Two people in the cockpit versus one, if we're talking about the F15C. 15, 15 and that's where the weak point was, and that was the point that we attacked. How did we do that? We tried to confuse them. The American tactics, they're not frightened of anybody. They will come in in the high 30s, maybe the low 40,000 feet, in a formation called wall. If there's four of them, they are in line abreast, forming a wall. They don't care if they're putting out contrails. We would in the early days, because we didn't want to be seen, they didn't care. Their attitude was, we're coming down the middle of the street. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> and it can be quite intimidating when you look out and about 40 miles away, you can see four white lines coming towards you in a line, knowing that they're coming for you. <laughs> but anyway, how do we do it? At range, again, it's to destroy their situational awareness. So we would start to do some tricks, particularly if we had jaded, so we could keep track of each other. And by that, I mean we're going into 90-degree turns, breaking apart. We're doing big height changes, basically to try and disappear out of their radar scan because you've got a single F-15 pilot who's flying his aircraft but is also trying to operate his radar and talk to his other elements in the formation. And we would just try and catch him out by maybe the radar not quite following us and suddenly we're gone. They would hopefully coordinate between the four aircraft. We, if we've got four aircraft, are now trying to give them four different targets in different parts of the sky, possibly two having turned tail and maybe gone back 10 miles. We call that a pump. 
So you pump back, then face back up again, perhaps now not in their radar scan. So basically, it's all about sneaking through longer range, etc. And generally speaking, if there is a breakdown on their side, we would tend to get shots in before they would. Our missile, the Super Temp Sky Flash, wasn't quite as long-legged as the AIM-7 Mike Sparrow, uh, but not far off it. But they were both requiring the radar to lock its target for the duration of the missile flight. So that was the limitation. That changed with the AMRAM. Mm -hmm. with, if they had AMRAMs and we didn't, the fire and forget bit gave us a big challenge. So we would get to the visual merge with some advantage, with equal or with no advantage. If we we're no advantage visual merge, there's only one thing we would do, and that's try and get the heck out of Dodge as quickly as possible, which was generally charging straight through the fight as, with our hair on fire and then trying <laughs> to get safe airspace. And hopefully they wouldn't turn and chase us down. Uh, if they did, we're usually toast. Vis if it was equal we're still looking by the nature of the F3 to get out the fight as quickly as possible, hopefully with cross cover. And uh, if we came in with advantage, we would take what we could quickly, but again, knowing that if we stayed and there were still live players there um, on the other side, very quickly we could end up defensive. So it was a heck of a, bit of discipline really not to get too greedy when you finally break into the yeah. the fruit orchard to think i'll just have another apple no <laughs> you've had two apples get, get out before <laughs> the farmer arrives <laughs> sort of style um again f-15s very easy to see particularly plan form huge wing area um they tended to fight around the 350 uh not Tight sort of area. We would try and be faster than that for our energy management and the configuration of our airframe. Um, they were quite happy to work one on one. I rarely saw two or three F 15s in the same visual fight. Okay, right. They tended not to come in if there was two F 3s against two F 15s oh. in a visual fight. That was pretty much it. The others tended to stand back and maybe there would be coordination uh, between them. That was also what we would try and do if we had the opportunity of a free and engaged fighter, i.e. somebody who is keeping the enemy interested and the other one who has perhaps got less pressure on him, manoeuvring such that he can come back in with advantage. If he can do that, depends on what the two enemy fighters are doing. Um, but generally speaking, they would like to go two-circle, as we would as well, but their both the rate of turn, so degrees per second, and how quickly their nose was coming round the horizon, um, so that was rate per second, plus also the radius of turn was better than ours. So pretty quickly, mm -hmm. certainly after 270 or 360 degrees of turn, they're going to have angles on us, and we're expecting to have sidewinders coming towards us. Mm -hmm. We never ever, the F-40, F-15, never really got into gun situation because the guns tracking took too long and generally the fight broke down before that. Mm -hmm. um, there could have been something called something we call snapshot guns, which is basically high, high aspect or a, a guy just flashing across your nose. 
for training has limited value. For real, it could have a bit of a, a shake-up effect where you suddenly think, bloody hell, there's rounds coming towards me. The moment you start fighting the rounds and not the aircraft, that gives the firing aircraft a chance because you have to do something. It's called a gun's jink to get away from the rounds of the, the gun cannon that's coming towards you. Um, but they're also fairly strict uh, training limitations on that because going head to head with guns uh, can generally cause very close aboards. Um, yeah. So it was frowned on. So that's generally how the F-15s worked. The 16s tended to start their fight a lot closer. Even when they had the AMRAM, they were not really, uh, and it's all nations really, they were not um, air superiority. They were not um, offensive counter air fighters, i.e., we're going into enemy airspace and we're going to dominate it. They tended to be a bit more close in. Mm -hmm. And of course, smaller size and more manoeuvrable, they lived for the visual fight. Uh, <laughs> and we couldn't really live with them at all. Any sort of visual fight with an F-16, no matter what configuration we were in, got to the stage where it was, it was over in seconds. Because you mm -hmm. think, we've just gone down, down, just gone wing to wing to pass turn now the f-16 always goes single circle now by that what's the difference between two circle and single circle well there's your two circle fight as i've said before mm -hmm. i'm going to go i'm going to go this way f-16 is going to or the opposition's going this way we're make we're making two circles if you look at it in plan form with their with their centers mm -hmm. displaced single circle we're coming towards i will turn towards him he will reverse and go this way so now you can see we're making one yeah. circle with the centre here. Now that is for a radius fighter, which the F-16 is. He can get his nose round much quicker, which is rate, but radius in a much tighter radius. So if I try and show you equal, equal, we come round and after 180 degrees, if I just put my hands that way, we come nose to nose like that. Yeah. Equal, equal. With an F-16... If I bring myself round here, the F-16 is already, yeah. if I can feel like that, he's got angles because his circle is much smaller. He's come round much faster. So therefore, after I've turned 120 degrees, he's already got his nose on for a shot across the circle. Yeah. So that's how the F-16 works. That's the knife fight in the telephone box. The F-18, you haven't mentioned that, but they're very similar. But the F-18s we could actually deal with because they lost energy quite quickly in the yeah. visual fight. And we could see them almost wallowing. So they were a little bit like us. They could, they wanted to keep the fight a little bit wider and keep it two-circle. But my experience of F-18s was that we, st excuse me, we stood a little bit of a better chance with them. But the 16s, no. And also, when they go nose-on, they disappear because they're so small. Yeah, so small, yeah. The vipers, as they were called. Um, so they were really quite hard work and very demoralising. Because you think, yes, I've got oh, no, I'm dead. Not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we were very much let's keep the fight at, at arm's length and use guile and cunning, and occasionally a little bit of subterfuge, and come in with advantage to the visual merge and be disciplined not to try and grab too much if you've come in with advantage. Yeah. That was that was life in the F3. Guile and cunning. And we really? were good at that. 
That was a great insight there to, you know, like how the F3 uh, fared against these types because I've always been fascinated and, and getting someone with your experience telling me that is great. But before we wrap up, Roy, I want to know, um, did you ever get to chase F111s down low and did you be able, could you catch them? Yes, yeah. Um, the most common time was an exercise in the 1980s and 90s called Exercise Salty Hammer. And what was that? That was basically NATO trying to swamp UK air defences. So all the NATO forces that were in Germany and Europe at that time, as well as some of the UK forces going over the North Sea and coming in, as if they're coming, you know, like the Soviet Union uh, forces, uh, Warsaw Pact, coming across the North Sea, Poland, etc., etc. But it would be mass raids to try and swamp the... Um, and saturate the air defences mm -hmm. of uh, the United Kingdom. So they frequently used F-111s at low level coming in. Um, that I should also point out, it was one of the times when I actually went up against a B-52. <laughs> and I can, I can say this now because the radar's out of service, but we got initial contact at 120 miles, which was pretty good for an airborne radar. Yeah. But then you have to say it was against something the size of Norfolk, you know, a B-50 <laughs> coming at you. So, anyway, I digress. The F-111s, yeah, they were coming in, and quite often we would end up being displaced north or south of them and then turn in behind to try and chase them down. And they're running at about 500 feet generally over the water. Um, and in the early days with the F-3, yes, we could chase them down. Mm -hmm. Why did I say early days? Well, I have mentioned before, for various reasons, some of them necessary, others were political, the engines were detuned as we went through life. So therefore, the top speed of the F3, particularly at low level, was became more limited. But we could make 800, 820, 830 knots at low level, and that was more than enough to catch the F111s. Um, but it was, yeah, we were about the only ones that could do it. That's right. Um, that's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing them uh, stories there, Roy. I'm sure our viewers are going to love that because I certainly was. I, I have to sometimes forget I'm working. I'm listening like a viewer. <laughs> but Roy, yeah, thank you very much for coming on again. It's been obviously a pleasure. No bother at all. Nice to see you. <laughs>